Um, okay, so hi, it's so good to see you all again. Um, so, you know, several of you have asked and talked to us about Na, the little girl who died. And so I'm going to try to share a little bit with you. But man, that was, that was such a powerful time of worship that I may not make it through. So Todd may have to come up and, and take over for me. But um, that was such a powerful time. And it just reminded me a little bit of a couple things I want to tell you about Na. And we got here last night late, and I, we, we couldn't get the pictures because we showed up like three minutes before we were going to stand up and talk. So we're going to share some pictures with you about Na and kind of share a little bit of her story Todd shared. But to, because so many people have asked about her, and today at lunch, Summit came up and... Um, Woo! Have a conversation with us at, at lunchtime, and he said, "I just want to talk to you about Na, the little girl that you mentioned." And so we had some questions, and Summit, I want you to know that like you talking to me at now about Na made it real again about the fact that we're going to see her in heaven when we when we go, and um, so it made eternity ex- ex- real again. And uh, the conversation that I had with Summit. I just had to kind of pull back from because it just brought so many tears again. He was asking about her and saying, I really want to meet her. Someday I want to meet her. And I said, she's in heaven because a a group of of Americans came several years ago and hosted a VBS in our village. And Na decided she wanted to give her life to Jesus at that VBS so many years ago. And on her deathbed... Um, Na was actually sharing with her parents who were Buddhist. And he was, she was telling her parents on her deathbed, mom and dad, and you can put the picture up now. I think I can handle it. Um, maybe you can put it up. Yeah. Maybe I can't. Um, so Na was, thank you. Oh, man. So Na was... Um, and I was telling her parents on her deathbed, Mom and Dad, I know Jesus. And I want you to know him too. And I know that this is my end. But I want you to know him because I'm going to be in heaven. And I want you to be there with me. Well, it's taken quite a while with Na's parents. And, but I have to tell you, this last summer, we had, I had a wonderful conversation with his, her, mom, her dad, actually. And, and he is finding his way towards Jesus. I don't know if he's there yet, but he's finding his way. And so I don't understand the why God fully. But I understand, God, you are doing something through Na's death. And just the power of her death, even in sharing about her and having Summit talk to us about her life and her death and that we can't wait to see her again, um, made these words really real as we sang this song um, tonight. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny and Na's destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever steal me from his hand. Till he returns or calls me home, here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. And so I just wanted to, we just felt like we wanted to kind of, I, I don't even know, it's not like we wrapped it up, but we just wanted to tell you like what God's doing in Na's life, that it through her life and through her death, he is being glorified and his kingdom is real. And so Summit, I can't wait to introduce you to Na when we get to heaven. I can't wait. And I'll just add that um, 
part of the story is uh, this summer, um, Carla had an opportunity to talk to Nod's dad, uh, Jode is his name, and um, Jode and An, his, her mom, uh, are Buddhists, grew up Buddhists, as most do in Cambodia, and um, uh, Jode told Carla that uh, since Nod's death, that he had been having some uh, terrible dreams, nightmares, if you will, and um, just about Na, and for four months that the dreams he were having was having about Na was just so painful. And then, uh, and he, uh, I don't know if he prayed uh, or, or what happened, but God took those dreams and he changed those dreams for Jode. And he, Jode knew right at the four-month mark that his dreams changed. And now he is seeing in his dreams, he's seeing Na in heaven. And it was at that point that they stopped going to the Buddhist temple and they started going to the church in the village. And so, like we said, God is after uh, Jode and On. Uh, they have 11 kids. Um, and, uh, and so he, he's after that family. And a lot of the, the littler kids who have grown up, uh, yeah, this is, uh, there's Jode in the middle. Uh, you can see him and On next to her. Uh, and then... Um, Nas, the one all the way on the left, and then three of her sisters um, that are in this picture. And so um, all of those uh, little girls um, are growing up in the school. They're hearing about Jesus as uh, teams come through and, and, uh, and tell them about him. So God is being glorified. And um, we don't know all the whys, uh, but he is uh, slowly showing us. And so it's a beautiful thing. Let's pray before we get started. Father, uh, we do thank you for uh, we thank you for the way that you pursue people. God, the way that you go hard after those um, that run from you, um, but God, you you keep after them, and we thank you for that. God, I continue to pray for Jode and On and their family, and uh, just that you would continue to pursue them and watch over them. And uh, bring them to you, Father. And then tonight, Father, as we uh, continue uh, to look uh, at your word, at your church, at your kingdom, pray that you would open your hearts to the things that you have for us. God, it really is in you alone. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, uh, last night, um, what did we learn about? It's not about me. Okay, that was all right. Somebody had it there. Okay, let's try it again. It's about the kingdom. Okay, that was this morning. It's not about me. It's about the kingdom. And, uh, and so tonight we're going to look at another tension. And I'm going to set it up by talking about the 60s. And um, I don't remember the 60s. And uh, probably some of you don't either. And it may not be for the same reason. I'm just saying. Okay. <laughs> Because I was born in 66, so that's the reason I don't remember. I don't know why you don't remember. We don't go into that, all right? But uh, in, our, in our nation, uh, in the 60s, there was a lot of turmoil. And the turmoil was, uh, it was about many things, but at the heart of the turmoil, at least as I've seen and understood, there were two isms that were at the heart of the turmoil. And one was racism, and the other was sexism. 
And those two isms were really just tearing this country apart because isms can be incredibly powerful, can't they? And we've made a lot of strides in America since the 60s. We're not there yet, certainly. We are not there yet, but we've made a lot of strides. But I believe that there's one more ism that's even fundamental, that actually those two isms kind of come out of or are born out of. And this ism has not only plagued America, if you will, but it has plagued the church. And tonight, we're going to look at that. And it's really plagued the church throughout its history. And I think that it's done a lot of damage, not only to the church, but it's done a lot of damage to the kingdom of God because it's at the core of these other isms. In 2003, a man named Robert Fuller wrote a book, and that book was called Somebodies and Nobodies. And it's the problem of rankism. And uh, you may not have heard that. You may not have heard the term rankism much. But once you learn what rankism is, you begin to see it everywhere. You see, rankism is when those who have power abuse their power and keep those in a lower rank in their place. Bullying is a good example of that. And we see it more and more in school, and we see it in social media, and we really see it all over the place. Bullying is a great example of rankism. But so is sexism is a form of rankism. If I, as a man, believe a woman's only place is in the kitchen, and I am determined to keep her there, and I have power over her, that's not only sexism, but that's rankism. When I treat a waiter poorly because maybe they got the wrong order or they didn't hear what I said or they brought the wrong drink and I'm like, what is your problem? Folks, that's rankism. You know, uh, I'm the vice president at, at Cadence and I do a lot of hiring of people. Part of the interview process and part of the vetting process for folks that want to be missionaries and come to our mission. And one of the things I enjoy doing is going out to lunch or to dinner with those that want to be missionaries. And uh, it's a great time, obviously, just to get to know them, to be with them. But also, I think it's just really important to see how do they treat the people that are waiting on them, right? Because when we go in the restaurant, We hold all the power. We're the consumers. We are being waited on. And we just get to sit back. And it's, you know, obviously, I haven't been to, I don't know if I've been to any dinners where the person being interviewed actually blows up and chews out a waiter. But I want to know, are they going to make eye contact? You know, are they going to talk to them like they're a person? Or do they just ignore them? Because you guys, un- uh, you got to understand that rankism is very subtle. It can be very subtle. And sometimes it can just be about eye contact. It can be about a smile. Or just in the body language as you dismiss somebody or as I dismiss somebody. 
You see, rankism creates separation between the somebodies and the nobodies of this world. And we see it played out both globally and locally. But the good news about rankism is it creates a great opportunity for the gospel. It creates a great opportunity for the kingdom of God. Because again, like we talked about this morning, the kingdom of God, that economy is really different. And the kingdom of God is about the dignity of everyone, no matter who you are, no matter how much money you have, no matter what side of the tracks you live on, no matter what you're doing. The kingdom of God is about the dignity of everyone. And so when this world is ruled by the power brokers, by those that have money and those that have power and those that have fame, we as the the body of Christ can come in and give people dignity that maybe have never experienced it. And it is a powerful thing. So I want Carla to come up, and she's, uh, I think, you ready, babe? You're good. Okay, she's together. And um, she's going to talk about global somebodies and nobodies. Yeah, so, um, so I think you all know I run a nonprofit organization. It's called Lightbridge International. It began 13 years ago. Originally, we began working with orphanages in Thailand and Burma. We still do that. But about 10 years ago, God opened the door for us to begin working in Cambodia. And that's where the bulk of our ministry is happening, is in Cambodia. And um, we've just seen God do amazing things. Some of what he's done, um, ha- he's allowed us to open schools, two schools where we're educating over 200 kids, both in a village that's on a former mine field, so we call it the Minefield Village, uh, as well as the slums of Poipet, which is the border town where we, where we work near. And so um, we're just so honored by that, and uh, he allowed us to start a feeding program a few years ago. He also allowed us to begin doing clean water initiatives, health and hygiene training, and all of it's just saturated in the gospel. Evangelism and discipleship is at the base of all the things that we do. But about six years ago, God um, began to burden our hearts for a special especially women who were in the village. Because if you live in the middle of a minefield, what do you do? How do you provide for your families if your husband is not around? Or even if he is, how do you provide? And uh, what we learned was women were traveling across the border illegally and going into Thailand as illegal immigrants to find whatever work they could. Some of it was uh, hard labor on farms where they were abused or exploited, and some of it was worse. And so um, the women that we were working with, we were realizing were either uh, victims or at risk for um, exploitation and human trafficking. And we just realized we got to do something. We can't, what, what can we do? And so we began praying, Lord, what would you have us do? And I, I'm not going to all the details, but what God allowed us to begin was uh, um, a, a job creation and education program that we call Landmine Design. 
Yeah, because it's on a minefield, so we got landmine design. We thought it was kind of clever. Um, <laughs> um, but it's not about, we don't, do with, we don't deal with landmines, so I want to make that clear. We don't have anything to do with landmines. And it's cleared. The landmines had been cleared, so that's praise Jesus. Okay, so we started this uh, education job creation program not knowing what God would do. Like, okay, maybe God would do something. And what we did was we taught the ladies in the village. We brought on six women at that time, back in 2013, brought them on and taught them the skill of rolling beads from paper. And so we, we taught them that skill. We learned it from another, per, another mission team member that taught us. And so we thought, well, we'll try it. You know, it seems pretty easy. How hard can it be? Oh, Lord, it's hard. Anyway, um, so we taught them that. And then we just thought, okay, let's see if there's a market for it in the States. And there has been, and God has done a great thing. And in these six years, we have seen God raise up uh, not just the six women that we brought on part-time back in 2013, but today we have 27 women full-time employed in our village. And God is doing such remarkable things through sustainability and dignity that we just can hardly believe it. Well, so... That's kind of the precursor to the story I'm going to share with you because I want to share with you how that plays out in the lives of somebody's and nobody's. And so um, about a year and a half ago, uh, we realized that not only uh, were there women who needed jobs and we could teach them jewelry, but we also realized that the uh, textile and sewing industry there is greatly exploited and greatly abused. And yet there's great skill. The ladies, a lot of the ladies there are very skilled at sewing. And so we began a year and a half ago, part of our program, a sewing part. So there's some textiles, not just jewelry that we do. So we brought on four women. Well, this past February, I was in Cambodia, and um, our ladies, only four of those ladies in our sewing program, they're all a part of a, of a church there, and they love Jesus. And they, I came, and we were meeting, and they said, Carla, would you consider bringing on another gal? Her name is Aya, and we're really concerned about her. I'm going to tell you her story, but this group of women who love Jesus were like, could you bring her on? And I said, well, no, I can't because we don't have the money for her. Our, our, our standard is we have to have at least a year's worth of salary before we bring on a woman. We want to make sure we can keep her employed for a year. And so I'm like, you guys, I don't know if we can do this. And they said, well, could we just pray? And I said, yes, let's pray. Let's pray about it. And then I went to meet Aya. And I'm going to read you about, I'm going to read to you about what I wrote about her because I don't want to miss parts of it. But we're going to put up a couple pictures. Aya is a 43-year-old widow, widow living in the slums of Poipet, along with her three children, young men who quit school when they were far too young in order to begin working in construction. Struggling to merely survive, Aya and her children work at anything they can just to provide each morsel of food. For Aya and so many like her, poverty includes exploitation. Her home was a shack. That's her home behind her. Uh, it was made before this home. It was made of grass and cardboard where she fought constantly against the wind and rain, saturating and threatening to destroy her home and meager belongings. Out of desperation, Aya, in January of this year, signed for a $1,000 loan, not fully understanding that the interest each month was 58%. With the money, she was able to build the home pictured here. Go to the next slide, please. She was able to build this, slope, this home of corrugated metal with that $1,000, and it's on stilts. 
You see, education was taken away from Aya when she, was, when she survived the killing fields as a child. She learned to sew in order to work in the terribly exploited sex sector of fast fashion. Her old sewing machine is protected, next slide, under the shelter of her new home. Without a car, Aya rides uh, her bike to her boss and picks up as much jean fabric as she can, carrying it to her home to begin sewing shorts or pants. This time, she's showing, sewing shorts. She sews the, the hems, seams, inseams, zipper, pockets, waistband, all of it. And for every pair that she does, she earns nine baht, 20, 29 cents. On a good day, she can complete five pairs and make a whopping $1.45. Paying her loan each month costs $65. If Aya works all 30 days in the month, she would only make $43.50, far short of what she needs just to make her loan payment. Aya is exploded by a, exploited, <laughs> exploited and exploded by a loan shark charging 58% interest. She's exploited by a greedy boss, hiring a desperate woman to do all the work while he profits for double. Without help and the opportunity to earn a dignified wage, Aya's poverty would continue the spiral. Poverty's like that. It doesn't just stop with lack of money or food. The cycles truly churn unrelentingly, spiraling downward in hopelessness. Aya was a nobody. She was being exploited by the somebodies in her world who used their position, power, and resources against Aya and so very many women like her. Meeting her and hearing her story, uh, the women in our team began to really pray. And I shared this story with our prayer team. I have a prayer blog on the Lightbridge online site. So if you want to pray, man, go on that. And I really need to work harder at putting more prayer stuff on there. But that's another topic. Anyway, we met her and we began praying. And I put that on the prayer blog. And because of compassionate friends who gave and prayed, we were able to hire her in February into our job creation and education program, Landmine Design. These compassionate friends chose to give even though they didn't know Aya. They chose to see her. They just chose to see her. They were the somebodies who saw a global nobody and took action on her behalf. Today, in addition to sewing textiles, some of them are back there, they're lovely, Aya is also now learning more about the God who provides. She is learning how to grow more in a relationship with him. And thanks to donors, we were delighted to help Aya pay off her loan. The loan shark didn't like that, but whatever. Uh, and work with her now to create a budget with the dignified wage that she is earning at Landmine Design. And so I just wanted to tell you that story because she's such a perfect example to us. You know, for me, when I go out there, global nobodies are really not hard to see. They're all over the place. I see them every time. When I go to Cambodia, those needs are overwhelming and obvious. It can be difficult, though, I think, to see the nobodies in our own community and in our own church. And so Todd's going to come up and share a little bit about local and church nobodies. Yeah, I think, um, we, uh, I think we all have a sense that there are nobodies in our communities um, people right in Summit Community and Dillon and Silverthorne and Breckenridge, those places, even though they're resort towns and there's people with a lot of money, my guess is there's nobody's there too. So uh, you tell me, 
Now, let's just take a minute and you tell me who are some of the nobodies that are part of Summit County because I don't know Summit County. I actually know Poipet, Cambodia better than I know Summit County. So uh, I need you to tell me who are some of the nobodies that you see in Summit County? Okay, yeah, thank you. Good. Somebody? Okay, tell me a little bit about the North Africans. Really? Okay. Wow. They come here and they're just groceries and nobody's good. I saw a hand over here. Yeah. Okay. So a lot of homeless, even in Summit County. A lot of homeless here? Okay, wow. Okay. Okay, resort workers? Tell me about them. Who are they? Mm. Yeah. Speak up so folks can hear you. Wow. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Housekeepers, seasonal workers. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I can't imagine, I can't. Uh, it's got to be expensive to live in Summit County, I imagine. And so, there. What's that? Wow. Okay. Really? Okay. Wow. I saw a hand, uh, Mark. Yeah. Wow. Really? Yeah. Wow. Okay. Anybody else? Yeah, way back there. Wow. Illegal immigrants. Yeah. Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. So the mentally ill is uh, what was mentioned. Yeah. Okay. 
those that are addicted to, to drugs, yeah. They are um, all over the place, uh, for sure. And um, so one of the most powerful things uh, that you as a church can do is to get to know the local nobodies, you know? And um, just hearing from you, I mean, I, you know, I thought, oh, I'll make a, a list of a few things. And I mean, you just in, what, two minutes or three minutes, you enlighten me. So you obviously know who some of the groups of, uh, of nobodies are. And it's important that um, getting to know like the homeless or the elderly or foster care, anything like that, it gives you an amazing opportunity to do what we talked about today, and that's build the kingdom of God. Because over and over again, as Jesus talked about the, ki- the kingdom of God, who did he talk about taking it to? The poor, right? The orphan, the alien. I mean, you can go throughout scripture again and see that God has a special place in his heart for the poor. He has a special place in his heart for the nobody. And one of the things, Carla and I have been doing trips overseas now. We've been taking teams of trips overseas for probably 25 years. I think we've missed one summer in the last probably 25 years. I'm so committed to it because it's so important that we get to know the nobodies of this world, right? It is so important because I believe that when you're with the poor, that God is there in a special way. And I experience God when I am with the poor, like ways that I don't experience him when I'm with you. And I don't experience him in my home church. Because God has a special place in his heart for the nobodies of this world. And the the kingdom economy is set up to bring dignity to the lowest rungs of our society. And we as a church, we should be on the forefront. Folks, for so long we were, we were on the forefront. So many of the hospitals, right, were born out of the church. And so many of the the soup kitchens and so many of the feeding programs and all those were born out of the church. But too much, we've abdicated that responsibility. And we said, we'll let the government handle that. The government should be doing more about the homeless problem or about the illegals or about whatever it is. But folks, the government doesn't have the answer. They don't know the kingdom of God, the way we do. Uh, I mentioned that uh, at Bear Valley, we had a, a lot of ministries. And most of them were focused on the poorest of the poor in Denver back in the late 70s and early 80s. And um, I, I have a good friend, his name is Dave Runyon, and he um, He's tied into the community in Denver, the faith community, like nobody else I know. And, um, and uh, he told me uh, about probably six months ago, he goes, Todd, he goes, I work with a lot of the, the pastors and the churches and the people in ministry downtown. 
And he goes, I estimate, he goes, this is just my guess, but I estimate that 80% of the ministry that is going on to the poor in Denver right now was birthed out of Bear Valley. Folks, that was 40 years ago. You talk about fruit that lasts. (laughs) That's what happens when a church goes, we want to see the nobodies in our community and we want to go after them. And I don't know, 80%, that's probably high. But the reality is, for the last 40 years, that a a group not much bigger than this (laughs) in those days is still having a deep impact in a city like Denver. And one of the ministries I mentioned that came out of Bear Valley uh, was a ministry called MOPS. And it didn't just come out of Bear Valley. Let me tell you the story. There was a a couple of moms that wanted to reach their friends. And at the time, they looked at all the moms in their neighborhoods and they said, man, there's all these mothers of preschoolers. And, you know, they're at home all day long with the kids. They're driving them crazy. And we just want to reach out to them. They are really nobodies. Nobody's seeing them. Nobody, the church isn't doing anything for the mothers of preschoolers. And so they, they both went to the same church and they went to the pastor in that church and they said, we want to start a program. We want to invite our friends and we want to help them be better parents. And we want to give them, we want them to just get together and, and be able to share and have their kids watched for a few hours. And, you know, they, they shared their whole dream. And the pastor said, Nah, I, that, no, that's not really what the church is about. Uh, they can come on Sundays, that's fine. But, you know, we, you know, we don't want to use our fellowship hall in another day of the week. You know, not two days of the week, right? So I, I don't really know what he said, but he basically said no. And so those two moms went to two other churches. They said, you know what, we're going to find a church that will let us. One of them came to Bear Valley, one, to, one went to another church, actually near our church up in uh, Arvada, Wheat Ridge area. And both of those churches said, yes, you can do this. And so they began to invite their friends. You know, Wednesday mornings from 9 to noon or whatever it was, come. Have your kids watched. And I don't have to tell you the rest of the story, right? Pops International. Over 60 countries that MOPS is in these days. Almost every church you go to, you see a MOPS group. And mothers of preschool are, preschoolers are being reached day in and day out, and they are no longer nobodies. The church, probably more than any other organization, has given them dignity and recognized what an incredible thing that motherhood is and honored that. Okay, Mark, you need to shut your, I know you're working on that over there, but you know, shut your ears. I'm gonna be hard on you for a second. Folks, the honest, the honest thing is pastors aren't very creative, okay? <laughs> pastors don't really see the nobodies in, this, in, in their communities. I mean, they're working, most, you know, most days they're in the church, They're surrounded by Christians, and they're preparing to equip you to go out to the world. 
The reality is you guys are the eyes and the ears. You're going out every day and you're experiencing, you know, the, the people that only speak Spanish. You're experiencing, you know, all the different groups that you talked about. You're rubbing shoulders with them. You're out there. And the body of Christ, the people in the pews, they need to be the ones that are the eyes and the ears of the church and helping the church see the nobodies in their community. We have a guy in our church, his name is uh, Quan. And uh, Quan is in IT, and Quan loves video games. And he wants to start. You want me to get rid of this? Here's what's going to happen. I'm going to try to be a little creative here and come up with a solution. Yeah, here's a problem. That's as creative as he gets. <laughs> oh, I love you, Mark. I've only known you for 24 hours, but I love you already, man. But Quan loves video games. I think it's Fortnite or something like that that's really big right now. But he goes, Todd, there is not a a Christian presence in this whole video game uh, area. That's, and it's just exploding. I don't know if you guys know what video games are doing these days, but in Korea, they're building stadiums so that they can have these tournaments. And it is crazy. What is going on? Yeah, 16-year-old won the Fortnite, right? And he won $3 million. Not bad. <laughs> But the idea that somebody, you guys, pastors aren't thinking about that. They're not thinking, oh, how can we reach out to all those kids playing video games mindlessly in their basements for hours on end? But somebody sitting in your seat is because they're there. And they go, how can the kingdom of God penetrate a whole culture of gamers? I have no clue. But you know what? There's somebody out there that loves the Lord, that he is calling, that God is calling to figure it out. And if we just keep those people sitting in the seats, in the pews, and just coming on Sunday, nope, just come on Sunday. That's all you're supposed to do. There could be a whole generation of gamers that might not hear the gospel. But if we unleash them, if the church can give them a platform to go and find the nobodies. But the problem is (laughs) that we have rankism in the church as well. It's just not global. It's not just local. But we have church nobodies as well. I was recently at a church vision night And the pastor spent almost two hours outlining his vision for the church. He read scripture and painted a compelling vision for how the church was going to transform the community. He was funny, honest, passionate, and inviting. And the packed sanctuary hung on every word. In the end, his invitation, which honestly I thought was going to be for money, because it usually is, right? But his invitation was for everyone to, one, get right with God, and secondly, to join an eight-month discipleship course so they could learn to make disciples, 
and join him in his vision for transforming and reaching the community. Now, you know, on the surface, that doesn't sound bad, right? I mean, some training and discipleship and transforming the community and doing all that, not so bad. And in fact, it happens in churches everywhere. But the subtle message, and this is the subtle message of rankism, to the person in the pew is God has told me what you are supposed to do and how you are supposed to do it. And if you disagree with me, the pastor, the leader, then you are missing God's call for your life. You see, that's somebody in power saying to everybody else, this is how it's done. And if God is not speaking to you, not guiding you, your passions and your giftings don't count unless they align with the church's vision or my vision as a pastor. We had a gal in our church. um, Her name is Sherry. And uh, Sherry, both her daughters were lesbian. And and, and she um, got to know some of her daughter's friends. And she just thought, man, I just... I just, want, I just want to love on them. I just want to show them that God loves them. And so she thought, I, I, don't, I, I, I can't do it alone. I want to see if there's other people in the church that maybe God is calling to reach that community. So she went to the church and she said, you know, this is what I want to do. I want to start a ministry. Can we just announce it from the front? And anybody who's interested, anybody who feels like the Spirit of God is moving, and we can just meet together, and we can figure out how do we reach this community with the gospel. So the elders went, well, yeah, we'll think about it. Let us talk about it. And so they met, and they came back, and they said, no, you know what? That is just way too controversial. We can't think that people think that we approve of that kind of lifestyle And so if we have a ministry, we're afraid that people are going to think that we approve with the homosexual lifestyle. And so, no, you cannot start a ministry. We will not announce it. So what does a person like that do? What do they do? They feel like God is moving them and they want to to reach this, you know, a nobody in their community. What do they do? You know what a lot of folks end up doing? They start their own nonprofit. <laughs> they, thought, they start a thing called a parachurch ministry. Folks, in the last probably 70 years, there's been this explosion of parachurch ministries. And they're doing a lot of good. I mean, Carla and I both work for ones, right? And they're doing a lot of good around the world. But folks, it's not the way God intended it. Jesus talked about the kingdom 86 times. He talked about the church twice. How much did he talk about parachurch? (laughs) Zero. That wasn't the design. I was reading uh, through the Old Testament as I read through my Bible this year, and just a couple of days ago, I came across Ezekiel 29. And uh, we're going to throw it up here. It's Ezekiel 29. 
uh, starts in uh, verse 17, and it says, In the 27th year, in the first month, on the first day, the word of the Lord came to me, Ezekiel, son of man, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, drove his army in a hard campaign against Tyre. Every head was rubbed bare and every shoulder made raw. Yet he and his army got no reward from the campaign he led against Tyre. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says, I am going to give Egypt to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he will carry off his wealth. Okay, where is this going? Hang in there. He will loot and plunder the land as pay for his army. I have given him Egypt as a reward for his efforts because he and his army did it for me, declares the sovereign Lord. Folks, was Babylon supposed to do the work of the Lord? No. Who was supposed to do the work of the Lord? Israel. Where was Israel? They were in captivity. And why were they in captivity? Disobedience. Because they were not walking with the Lord. Folks, if the church isn't going to do it, God will find some way else to do it. But don't you want Dillon Community Church to be a part of what God is doing? Don't you want that? I don't want folks to have to go around the church. I want them to go through the church because that's the way God designed it. We had another uh, ministry um, that got started. It was a motorcycle ministry. A husband and a wife that uh, loved to ride Harleys, you know, and they were decked out in all the leathers and, you know, had their hogs and, um, you know, didn't like a cage. I didn't know what a cage was until I met these people. Apparently, that's a car. Uh, that's what they call a car, is they call it a cage. And, uh, and so they, uh, they, you know, they're like, these, there's these motorcycle clubs, okay? They're not the gangs, but they're the clubs that are all around Denver, and they love to ride. And so they just said, hey, we want to see if there's other folks in the church that maybe have a heart to go ride their Harleys, and, and we just want to find one of these clubs and ride with them and just be with them and take the kingdom of God to their turf. And so we put the word out there, and a couple other people that uh, didn't like cages either, they joined them, and uh, there was about five or six from our, our church that began to go and, and ride their Harleys. The problem was the best time to ride is when? Sunday morning, right? Sunday morning. And so they were riding on Sunday morning. What do you think happened when the leaders found out that it was Sunday morning that this ministry was going on? They, yeah, they flipped out. (laughs) They said, nope, we can't have a ministry like that. We can't have a ministry that, you know, uh, uh, competes with the most important hour of the week. They should be here. Where do you think those folks are now? I have no idea. Yeah. You guys, it broke my heart that I had to tell them, look, you guys, I'm sorry. 
we can't support your ministry anymore. We can't tell other people in the church about it. We can't highlight it. We can't announce it from the stage because it's Sunday morning. And they hung around for a couple of months and and they disappeared. You see, in the church, we have seen that if you are in a position of power, you have the right to ignore the ministry callings of the laity. Your vision, your ministry calling matters because you're the pastor or an elder on staff. We justify that right under the guise of a unified vision that comes from the top down. It's pretty hard. And it's really a subtle thing. And nobody in the church wants to think that we have a problem with somebody's and nobody's. But folks, we do. And we've got to be realistic about it. And we've got to say it like it is. Now, let me tell you, let me just uh, give you a little quiz real quick. How do you know if you're a rankist in the church? Okay, how do you know? Well, let me tell you, how would you uh, finish this sentence? So-and-so is, is at Denver Seminary preparing for what? The ministry, Right? Or my son, yeah, he got a call from God and he's going into the ministry. See, that's how we think about ministry is it's that it's the ministry. But the reality is there is no the ministry. It's a ministry. And we've all been called to a ministry. You see, we think that, you know, somebody like myself, You know, I've been a missionary for 30 years, and I get this call from God, and God just blesses the missionaries, and he blesses the pastors with this incredible call, and the rest of you, well, we'll let you know when we need you. (laughs) Folks, it's not the way it is. The priesthood of the believer, have you ever heard of that? The priesthood of the believer is that we all have a call from God. We all have a direct line to him, and he can talk to us. He can speak to us, and he can give us passion for the way that he wants to move and the way he wants to bring his kingdom in your community and in this world. Now, I've been pretty hard uh, on pastors and church leaders. And I I warned Mark, and he, he said it was okay. But the reality is that we laity, we contribute to the problem as well. You see, most of us like to leave the ministry up to the pastor and staff. And we're busy living our lives and don't have time for God's calling. I can't tell you how many times when I was on church staff, and uh, like Carla, uh, she actually, I was on church staff for a few years, and then she took over in the same position, and that was overseeing our local and global ministries. And I can't tell you when I was overseeing the local ministries how many times somebody would come up to me, you know, and they would say, Pastor Todd, we got to do something about all these homeless here in Arvada. I mean, every time I pull up to a light, they've got a sign, and it just, oh, we got to do something about them. And by we, what they meant was you, right? You got to do something about this. Or they might say, man, the church really needs to do something about this. By that, they mean the pastors or the staff. You see, it's not just 
the people in power, but it's the laity as well. And the laity looks at the pastor and says, hey, we've hired you to do the ministry. You're trained, you're called, you're paid, so we can just sit back and enjoy the fruit of your ministry without lifting a mission finger, except the periodic night to feed the homeless or maybe go on a mission trip. See, life is much easier when I can pay someone else to care and to minister to the global and the local nobodies. And I can just get on with life. That's pretty tough. I realize that. But I hope at least you're, you're thinking about, okay, where, where am I in this? And what, what is my attitude? And, and you can at least hear it enough. And I can tell you that Carla and I have been here, been with you guys for barely 24 hours now. You know, we came rushing in last night. But we already love this church. <laughs> we have so enjoyed the, the meals together and just hanging out and talking. And, 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 we, and we were walking this afternoon. Um, don't worry, we didn't go far. Um, <clears throat> and I will say at lunch, we were sitting with a few ladies and they were like, what are you planning to do? And we're thinking, I said, well, we're thinking about going on a hike. And I said, you better, you know, alert Summit County rescue. And they looked at me and they went, you're in Grand County. I went, see, I'm already lost. The theme of journeying together, you know, and I, well, what I was going to say is that Carla and I, as we were walking, we said, man, we would love to journey together with this church. Great. You guys have a great church. Well, thank you. It's so good. I don't know if you realize how good it is. I hope so. So good. Such a beautiful spirit. Such wonderful people. But the question is, how do you take it from being a great church for us and take it out there. Some of the tension that you may feel right now, you got to wrestle with it. You got to wrestle with that tension between the somebodies and the nobodies. Because when you look at the global and the local scene, you guys are the somebodies. Especially globally. I mean, in America, we are so rich. You guys are so rich. I mean, if you own a car, you're like in the top 10% of the world's richest people. If you own two cars, it moves you up into like the top 5%. Okay, you guys, we're the richest of the rich. But even locally. But the problem is in the church, it's too easy to get nobodied. And we let it happen. And so those things, as a church, you're going to have to wrestle with. You're going to have to dig through. So the question is, what do we do about it? First of all, you've got to realize you've got a ministry calling from God. Everybody does. What's God asking you to do? And, you know, Ephesians 2, 10 talks about it. He said, it says, you know, God has given everyone good works to do that he's planned out before the foundations of the earth. 
And those ministry callings come a lot from our pain, like I talked about the first night. They come from our passion. They come from our comfort. They come from our circumstances. All kinds of things that God will use. So you got to get in touch with those. What are those? God, what are you calling? Ask him. Ask him. And second, the church must have a conviction and an infrastructure that honors the ministry callings of everybody in the church. And I know, I know Jim. Do you guys call him Pastor Jim? No? Okay, yeah, I just call him Jim too. It's so weird to call him Pastor Jim. That's, but anyway, you, you know, Jim. Yeah. <laughs> I had lunch today with Mark. And I just think you guys are set up beautifully because you have leadership that understands this stuff. I really do. I think that you have leadership that is not the typical leadership that even I was talking about here. I really wanted you to understand more of the, you know, big, big C, the church in America. But I really think that Dillon Community Church is poised in a way because they have leadership that understands and wants, wants you guys, to get outside the walls of the church. You know, and, and, and the church has got to have an infrastructure for that. It's got to be a launching pad. Otherwise, it just becomes a gathering, a holy huddle. Well, we're going to talk about those more tomorrow. Okay, how do you find your ministry calling? How do you uh, uh, structure a church so that it can be a launching pad? And so, um, how are we doing on time? How are we doing on time, Mark? What do you think? Two minutes over. Darn. Okay. Well, thank you for staying. Uh, I appreciate that. (laughs) All right. So, uh, again, we missed our discussion groups. I'm sorry about that. Um, I will say, though, when uh, we were first told we were speaking, Jim said we had an hour. So we actually planned an hour of stuff, I think, that's why we're missing our discussion because uh, it ends up being 45 minutes, which is great. You guys have been awesome. Carla said, hey, tell all the somebodies to go buy jewelry. So, uh, <laughs> so she'll be back there and uh, can, you know, uh, walk you through all that stuff back there. You guys are awesome. Thanks. Love you guys. Yeah.